The old account was settled long ago. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. We appreciate, Lynn and I want to appreciate the welcome you folks have given us here. It's a warm welcome you've given us, and uh, we, we do. We do appreciate that very much. Uh, something that you couldn't control with lightning hitting a, a transformer out here on a pole and knocking the power out and all of that. We, uh, we left the house. Our air conditioning unit had gone out on Wednesday. So uh, we knew what a warm welcome was like for the last three or four days before we came. Uh, whoever made that cinnamon bread, uh, I'll tell you what, that was excellent you left over there. I'm a bigger man because of it and I tell you, <laughs> Jess, thank you so much for, for taking such good care of us. We're looking tonight at 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's our joy and delight to be here. I left a newspaper over there from Tryon on the counter that said that Aldi's had moved in uh, in Landrum, and it said they were thrilled to be here. I said they couldn't be near as thrilled as we are to be here in this place at Crossroads with you. Second Samuel chapter 7, I want to preach on the subject, when God says no. When God says no. All of us have probably experienced uh, a no from God from time to time. And what our response to that is will determine, is determined by our view of God. Someone has said that if our view of God is that he is a big God, the problems that we face seem small. But if our view of God is small, those problems seem very big. Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite people to read, although if you read Jonathan Edwards, I saw there's books over there in the library in the mission house, uh, the works of Jonathan Edwards. Sometimes I have to read those pages three or four times to be able to figure out what Jonathan Edwards is saying. But I can tell you one of the things I like that his emphasis on is on the affections of our heart. To set our affections on things above and not on things of the earth. In his life, there occurred in one of his family members a definite no. Several years ago, I, I was saved through uh, a campus ministry. We, uh, nothing to take part. I, I'm all about the local church, and that campus ministry better be centered in a local church, by the way. Uh, but uh, we were doing a camp, campus ministry conference, and Chuck Phelps was pastoring in Concord, New Hampshire. So we took a, a trip with our family up there and several other people from around the country who were involved in campus ministry. And... Uh, during that trip, we took some trips to see, uh, went to Newburyport, Massachusetts, right outside of, of Boston, where George Whitfield is buried underneath the pulpit of one of the churches there. You have to contact the pastor and get him to come unlock it. Then you drop right, you climb up into the bell tower, and that bell was made in the foundry of Paul Revere. I mean, it's very neat stuff. Uh, you looked at, you could travel in Massachusetts to see where the Haystack Revival was. You could travel, uh, which we did. Uh, you go to the Rabbit Pond where missionary, first, some mis first missionaries were praying and sent out from the Rabbit Pond. But then we uh, also went to, uh, to where Dwight L. Moody, uh, where his ministry was in Northfield, where he and his wife were buried. 
And we went to Northampton where Jonathan Edwards had pastored a church. He was asked to leave there. But during that time, many of you probably have read uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached that in his own church with no results hardly at all. By the way, he was monotone. He read it right from the script. He, uh, it, he, but he went down and was invited to Enfield, Connecticut, just about 18 or 20 miles south of Northampton. And in Enfield, Connecticut, he preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and many people came to Jesus Christ as their Savior. We went to, uh, to Enfield, and uh, I went to the fire department and asked them, where was that church located that Jonathan Edwards preached Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? They had no idea. Didn't even know who Jonathan Edwards was. I found another person, though, that says... Uh, you go over there by that Montessori school, and right next door uh, to it, there's a driveway there, and you'll see a, a placard on the ground that tells you where that church was located. And so we went there, had prayer there together as a family, and uh, was just a, just a real blessing. Back in Northampton, where Jonathan Edwards preached, there's a cemetery right next to the, to the church. Um, Edwards is buried uh, up at Princeton. But in that cemetery is buried uh, the, his daughter, Jerusha Edwards. And um, she was very interested in Brainerd, who was, Brainerd was kicked out of Yale. This is about 1747. He was kicked out of Yale. Folks of you at, at Ambassador, please don't do this. He went to his teacher and told him, you have about as much grace as a chair. And uh, anyway, they kicked him out of, uh, out of Yale. Back in those days, uh, uh, if you were going to take a church, you were going to have to be educated at Yale or Princeton or one of those schools. And so uh, Brainerd took great interest in the American Indians and worked with the Delaware Indians and New Jersey and New York. He had real poor health. And uh, he came to Jonathan Edwards' house to recuperate. And uh, Jerusha uh, Edwards, Edwards, of course, uh, Jonathan and Sarah had many children. But Jerusha took a, a liking to Brainerd. She was much younger than him. And uh, the writings about them say that Jerusha was a godly lady, although Edwards said, I don't think she's ready to marry Brainerd. And said no. Through the authority of the father, said no to Jerusha marrying Brainerd. But you go to that cemetery in Northampton, Massachusetts, and you find the grave of Brainerd, and right next to it is the grave of Jerusha Edwards. God said Has God ever told you no? He told David no, and that's what we're going to look at tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want you to see it, not always is our response as good as David's was to saying no. Came to pass, says verse 1, that when the king sat in his house, 
And the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies. A very unusual time in Israel's history when you could find rest from your enemies. Here David was sitting there in his house, a house that King Hiram had built for him, house of cedar, you remember? The king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I have dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains, or the tabernacle. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. So here is David with a desire to do something for God. He had plans. Something that he said, you know, I've got a, a nice house to live in. And we find in, in the previous chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant had been returned now. And the, the Ark of the Covenant, where the Shekinah glory would dwell, now is in a tabernacle. He said it needs to be in a nicer place. He, I mean, he just had aspirations of a, of, a, of a house being built. And God wasn't asking for a house. David was coming up with this idea. He even said to Nathan, this is the first mention of Nathan uh, in the scriptures in, in just a few chapters, he's going to be confronting David about his sin. We find Nathan here, and he's telling, David tells him the situation, what he'd like to do. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Did you know we don't see anybody praying about anything? We don't see David praying about it. We don't see Nathan praying about his response. For we find out in verse 4, it came to pass that that night the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? The, the questions are asked expecting a no answer. Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, and have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? He didn't ask for one. Now, therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, this is the Lord speaking to Nathan, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcot, from the following of the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And he's reminding, he said, I want you to remind David of where I brought him from. Now, he's going to tell him, I don't want you to build this house. But notice how he said, I want you to remind him, where I have brought him from, from a shepherd to a king. Nathan is never rebuked here in scripture for what he did. He actually made a statement that was not the will of God because it's, he's going to be turned down. David's not going to be allowed to build this, this house. Here he is living the good life. The kingdom is united. Jerusalem, uh, the Philistines had been defeated. Ark of the Covenant returned. I mean, we could call it all kinds of good things going on here. 
he sits down to reflect on God's goodness. And he says, you know, I've got a nice place to live. I wish the Ark of the Covenant had one. A nice place to live. David had a plan. He was formulating a dream of how it could happen. And then Nathan says, well, go ahead. Whatever's in your heart, you go ahead and do it. How many times have we asked God for things? I, I mean, I've asked God for church buildings. I mean, we're running out of space in a church, and we're asking God for church buildings. And we said, God, you know, if we do this, we'll do it for your glory. Matter of fact, that's the only reason we should have it is for God's glory. For the built buildings, as these buildings do here, I'm, like I say, I'm an engineer background, so I'm looking at these buildings, and I say, boy, this is, this is, it reflects the beauty of Christ here. This is built for God's glory. I look at the function now. That's not mentioned in here, but I look at how how traffic flows inside of buildings and how the function of the building. And then I, I don't know about you, but those of us that fix stuff, I look at how you're going to maintain it. I've seen some very nice things that would have cost bunches of money, bukus of money to, to maintain, and it doesn't function. It doesn't work properly. But David, here he, he said, Lord, I've got, Lord I'm, I will do it. We'll do it for your glory. And yet, in beginning in verse 4, we see the Davidic covenant mentioned. The covenant the word covenant is not mentioned, but the promise is given here. And I think about Nathan having said what he said, kind of opening mouth and inserting foot. Usually I open my mouth to change feet, but uh, he, yeah, I could just see what's happening in this passage of Scripture. He wanted Nathan to go back and tell him that God's what God had said, and we don't admit here, Nathan doesn't admit he's wrong. God never rebuked him for it. But I noticed some key words in this text of Scripture in chapter 7. One of the key words is house. You're looking, and when you're preaching through a text, you're you're underlining and marking and, and seeing words that are repeated over and over and over again in the text. The word house is repeated over and over and over here. Sometimes it's referring to where David lives. Sometimes it's referring to what David wanted to build, the temple. In the larger part of the chapter, it's going to refer to a dynasty or to a legacy that God was going to provide uh, for David David's eternal kingdom through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Another key word that we see in this chapter is the word servant. David is here called a servant. One of the first times he's called a servant here. And in, in doing that, he's joining the ranks of Moses and Joshua and Job who are called servants. And he's called, David is called a servant. Verse 8, now therefore so shalt thou say unto my servant, David. Look where I brought you from. You were taking care of sheep, now you're a ruler over Israel. Verse 9, and I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, 
and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight and have made thee a great name, another good word, a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth, like Abraham. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. Since the time I was commanded judges to be over people, the people of Israel, I have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. And the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. He's going to establish a legacy through him, a dynasty will include the Lord Jesus Christ. And when thy days are fulfilled and shalt, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And if he commit iniquity, I have chastened him with the rod of men and with the stripes of children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I took away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all thy words and according to all his vision did Nathan speak unto David. Through this reiterating the covenant with David, we see that instead of building a house, and I've prayed with many a man, and, and they prayed with me in the same regard when, when God says no to them or to me. God may be not allowing you to do what you wanted, but he's doing a work in you so that he could later do a greater work through you. That's exactly what he's doing for David. Again, he's a man of war, we find from First Chronicles. And because of that, because of bloodshed and a man of war, he's not going to be allowed to build this house. He's building a house for David in a different sense. We uh, could justify some of our own decisions that we've asked for in relationships. We prayed for children for 12 and a half years before God gave us the first child. Some of you may have waited many longer. I've pray, prayed with people who uh, waited a long time or some who God never allowed them to have their own children. But how many times do we tell God, God, we'll dedicate this child. I mean, we'll do like Hannah. We'll take this child and we'll dedicate this child to the Lord. If you give us this child, we're telling God what we want him to do. And by the way, Psalm 115 verse 3 says a God in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. He's in charge and we're not. God hadn't asked for a house. And the man of war from 1 Chronicles 22, 8 would not be the one that was going to build it. It was going to be his son Solomon. Jerusalem was not yet fortified against her enemies. It was not a proper time for this temple to be built. David could have justified his plans, his dreams, and 
he would tell them, Lord, this is what seems best to me. After all, I'm doing it for you. And I'll praise and glorify you. My wife got cancer. We were on the way back from France, had gone to visit a missionary in uh, France in 2008. And uh, she was having some breathing problems. The medical doctor was in our church, the chairman of our deacons. And we began to do tests after we got back in uh, the summer of 2008 and found out that she had stage four colorectal cancer that had spread 100 seed tumors to her lungs. We took 30 chemo treatments. We went to Duke to see if there was anything else that we could do. I told God, I mean, I studied every passage I could on the healing that God does. And by the way, he's still in the healing business. And she's healed today in the very presence of Christ. And I told him, God, if you heal this woman, I'll stand up on top of the rooftop of the church and I'll shout your praises for the rest of my life. But you know what God said? He said no. And God comforted David's heart, told him through Nathan, look, you were a shepherd, now you're a king. He said um, to him, you're going to establish a house. And there's going to be a place of, of residing promise that the children of Israel will have security and posterity. There will be a future generation's promised There'll be a permanence to it. Verse 16 says, Thy throne shall be established forever. Forever. Over in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. Hebrews 1 8. Tremendous passage on disregard concerning our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. Hebrews 1.8 But unto the Son, he saith, God said, Thy throne, O God, here's the Father calling the Son God, Thy throne, O God, is forever and forever. And the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Verses that we use at Christmas time often, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6, we see in that passage of Scripture, many of you have memorized that. For unto you, us is, a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of his increase, his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order and establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. A permanence of the everlasting kingdom up ultimately fulfilled in the rule and reign of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. A house was eventually built. It was built by Solomon. 
But God had said no. He said no to Moses. That because of striking the rock, he was not allowed to go in the promised land. He could go up and see it, but he couldn't go in. God said no. He said no to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he prayed three times that the thorn in the flesh would be removed. He said he didn't, didn't remove it, but he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient. He sees all. He knows all. He knows what's best. He's God. David and Moses and Paul and sometimes you and me find out that God can say no. I've prayed with people about children. I've prayed with people about healing. I've prayed with people about ministry and ministry positions. God has said no to me in ministry positions in the past. I prayed that maybe a ministry that I was involved with would be able to continue, and God said, no. My wife passed in 2010, September 20th, 2010. I was pastoring in Irmo, Columbia, South Carolina at the time. Some months later, I moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina, and just to heal up, I, we, we don't know what your pastor, Diedrich, is going through and has gone through. I've experienced the loss of a spouse in ministry, but I cannot look at him and say, and I told him I, did, I couldn't, I can't look at him, and you cannot either, and say, I know what you're going through. You don't know. I know somebody, the Savior, who's acquainted with his grief, though. He knows his sorrows and grief, and he's the healing one. And I know God's going to do a work in Pastor Nathan, and I really believe that one day he'll be back in ministry. God said no. And so I moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina, and got actively involved in a local church, teaching some in Sunday school, and was not pastoring for the first time in a long time. I became a hospice chaplain for the first time. I'd volunteered before, but I'd never been a hospice chaplain. And uh, so I became a hospice chaplain in the Rock Hill area, in Lancaster. I even drove to Orangeburg, all over the state of South Carolina. About a year after I was there, at the church, I had talked to my children. I have three children now. After God said no uh, to uh, the first child, Amy was born in uh, September of 1986 in Houston. And then uh, we'd gone to an infertility specialist and uh, took it to, to a, it was a Jewish doctor, Dr. Yosowitz. And uh, he said, now we're going to have to run a pregnancy test on you. And so uh, I was flying to Greenville. I was working on a doctor of ministry degree. And I flew to Greenville and uh, got a call. This is the week the Challenger blew up. 
January of 86, I got a phone call from my wife. She said, can you, are you sitting down? I said, I'm in a motel room with my parents on a Friday night. They'd come up from Somerville, South Carolina, where I'm from, and, and uh, come to Greenville. And she said, can you go to a payphone? So I went to a payphone, and she said, are you sitting down? I said, no, there's no seat to sit here. I mean, you know. Now, for you younger people, I'm talking about a phone that was on the wall. You put coins into it, had a cord came out, and you talked on it like this. I know you don't know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm, but she said, honey, I want to tell you something. That pregnancy test was positive. We're going to have a baby in September. You could have heard a shout from Greenville, South Carolina, to Houston, Texas, all the way over there, and Amy was born in September of 86. And four years later, we were back again at that same doctor. He didn't do anything the first time. It was the great physician who was doing the work. And uh, so four years later, I said, let's, let's go back. They've made advancements in, in fertility. Let's go back again. And we went back in the same statement. We're gonna have to run the test, pregnancy test. This time I wasn't traveling anywhere. I went with her, went to the pregnancy test out, uh, scheduled out in the suburbs where I was pastoring out there. And the nurse came back and she said, you're going to have a baby. And in 1990, on the 4th of July, after I'd moved to Sherraw, a firecracker born on the 4th of July, who's now a pastor, uh, Jonathan was born. Four years later, we didn't go to any doctor this time. Doesn't have that in that story, like one and two. Four years later, while I was pastoring in Sherraw over at McLeod Hospital in Florence, 1994, God gave us a little boy. He's a CPA accountant. He's got five children now, just had twins on March the 2nd, and he's got his hands full, I can just tell you right now. But I met Linda. I asked those kids, they were on up, that was uh, 2012. I met Linda and I told my kids, I said, I think I'm gonna take this wedding ring off. And uh, I said, I'd like to meet somebody. And I said, what do you think about it? Dad, you and mom have already talked about this. We're excited about it. You, you do what you believe God wants you to do. And so I met Linda in church. By the way, that's a good place to meet people. Um, she had moved from Sweetwater, Tennessee. Her husband had passed away after they'd been married 39 years. And, and she had moved to uh, Rock Hill to live with her sister after her husband passed away. Uh, she's originally from western New York. She's from Batavia, New York, near Buffalo. She doesn't eat boiled peanuts, and she doesn't drink sweet tea, but we're praying for her. We're praying for her. <laughs> and I began to pray that God would direct us. And matter of fact, she was praying. And she prayed that God would give her maybe a, a person that had been married for a long time, had a happy marriage, that she and her husband had actually talked about her getting married again, uh, and all of that. And then she even prayed that maybe God would lead her to a pastor who had lost his wife. 
And I've said many a time over these last, this Thursday will be 10 years for us. I've said many a time, she prayed, had a prayer list, and here I am. <laughs> you know what she said? I should have prayed more specifically. <laughs> There's 21 grandkids, seven children are married. Five of those grandkids are, are married. There's three great-grandchildren. We shop at Dollar Tree. We're just having the time of our life, the time of our life. And being able to whatever semi-retire means, I don't know exactly what that it means, to be able to be helping churches, that's what we prayed about doing. That's what we prayed about doing. God said no. And sometimes he has a greater yes down the road. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's response to all of this. Notice it says here in verse 18, Then went King David in, he's set before the Lord. And this, this sitting position is actually a sign of humility. Just kind of what we talked about this morning with our, the mind of Christ, with a, an attitude of humility here. He he sat before the Lord in humility, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? This was yet a small thing in thy, my sight, O Lord God, that thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy work's word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things, and make thy servant know them. Notice verse 22. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God. He uses Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, he used it nine times in this prayer. Wherefore art thou great, O Lord God? For there is none like unto thee. You are unique. Neither is any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. When God says no to us, one of the things that Satan would love for us to do is to doubt the goodness and greatness of God. Here David acknowledges, you're a great God, even though you said no to me. It has everything to do with our view of who our God is. I remember after Barbara passed away and I was washing some dishes in the kitchen there in Irmo and, and tears were flowing. They still flow sometimes now. I, I deal with people in grief and hospice and I, they were flowing. And by the way, each person's grief is unique like a snowflake. Don't go to somebody and say, well, I, my cousin had something like you had and, and they got over it in three weeks. Don't listen to it. It's unique to each individual, each preacher, each person going through grief. It's unique to each one. 
I was there crying and, God, are you still good? There was a little plaque right on the cabinet. Psalm 119, verse 68. Thou art good and doeth good. Teach me thy statutes. He's still a good God. Even when he says no. Then sometimes we doubt his love for us. God, you said no. I mean, I prayed for that person. I was thinking we were going to have a relationship together, maybe even get married, and, and you said no to it. God, do you love me? Our unchanging God, the Bible says he loves us with an everlasting love. His love doesn't change, even when he says no. His goodness and his greatness does not change, even when he says no. And here David says in verse 26 of this prayer, and let thy name be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. How do you respond? I, I, can't, I haven't often responded as I should when God said no to me. But how do you respond when God says no? Have you doubted his love? Have you doubted his goodness? Al Smith wrote, Surely goodness and mercy. We sang that tonight. And of course, his son David, who went to Ambassador as a dear friend of ours, came to our wedding. He and Ginger came to our wedding when. Linda and I got married 10 years ago. But he wrote another song that we sang. The Lord is good. Tell it wherever you go. Sing it with me. The Lord is good. Tell it that others may know. Tell of his blessings and tell of his love. Tell how he's coming from heaven above. The Lord is good. Tell it wherever you go. And don't you forget it. Even when he says no, our God is still good. God may say no to us and to our plans and to some of the things that we feel like would be best, even a ministry position or a Sunday school teacher or some position in the church, and, and God says no. God is doing a work in us. He's bringing us to a place of God dependency where we could sing the song we sang at the end of the service today, this morning, Lord, I need you. I'm depending on you, Lord. He brings us to a place of God dependency in our nose that he has for us so that he can do one day a greater work in and through us. God's way, the scriptures say, is perfect. Shall not the judge of all the ages do right? And in something you've prayed about in recent days about your own life, maybe about this church, 
And God said, He's a God that's still good. He's a God that's still great. And as David's response was, I'm still going to praise him. May God help us tonight to be a people that when God says no, we realize his character has not changed. And that we can still praise him. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we pray that as we challenge Josh Pate just a few weeks ago from this pulpit, Josh, always speak the truth about God no matter what the circumstances are around you. Lord, I pray that we would realize that just as Job said at the end of his life, in Job 42, at the end of that book, after he'd lost his children and everything else that he lost, He said, I have heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. God, when you say no, we often get a close view of who God really is. Life with all of its twists and turns and realizing that, God, you're still doing a work to conform us to the very image of your son, according to Romans 8, 29. God, I pray that tonight that as we look in our own lives, the church, other things that we're involved with, that if God says no, he's still got our best interest at heart. And I pray that, Lord, you'd help us to have a biblical response. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name.